Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Program, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. And it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jonathan Greenberg. Jonathan taught for 30 years at Stanford Law School, and recently he joined the USF Institute for Nonviolence and Social Justice, and he's the senior associate director and scholar in residence there, and he's going to be our moderator, and he will introduce the speakers and the panelists. Thank you very much. So as George said, I've recently joined the community of the University of San Francisco, and I just want to say something about that very briefly. You know, everyone here who lives in the city knows that we have a treasure in uh, the University of San Francisco. Some of you, and I know Kimo in particular and others, are fierce fans of the Dons, and our basketball team this year is awesome. So please don't forget that. But our community is really awesome, too. And uh, the, you may know, but the mission of our university is, of course, excellence and education of uh, young people, and also graduate education. An equal mission of our university is social justice and the education of the whole human being. Our motto is change the world from here. So I'm proud to be part of the USF community, and tonight everyone here is part of the USF community. We have a dialogue extending that community to everyone here. We have an extraordinary opportunity because we have two remarkable individuals who will be in dialogue this evening. And as a personal note, I uh, have my life has been changed radically by both of these gentlemen who you're going to hear uh, speak tonight. I met uh, Dr. Jones oh maybe seven eight years ago, and my life has hasn't been the same in ways that you'll hear about. And we ended up uh, co-founding the USF Institute for Nonviolence and Social Justice. And I am so grateful to Father Paul Fitzgerald because of him, we're part of, integrated into the University of San Francisco, and I'm part of the USF community. And I have to say, it's gone so far that I call myself a Jesuit Jew, so, <laughs> or a Jewish Jesuit, because I'm so absolutely enamored by the community, the faith-based, interfaith commitment to moral development and social justice that permeates our university. So I want to introduce our two speakers, say a few words to frame the discussion. So as I I mentioned, Father uh, Paul uh, J. Fitzgerald is a, a Jesuit priest, and he's the president of the University of San Francisco. He comes to his presidency with a stunning background in scholarship, in uh, theology and philosophy. And if you look at his resume, you, you have to get help because you'll see that his degrees come from many different countries and his dissertations are in many different languages. And, you know, I don't want to presume anything, but... I know he enjoys running the university, but I think what he enjoys most of all is talking about the kinds of issues that we're going to talk about today, the core issues of, of, of human rights and uh, conscience and uh, morality 
in human behavior that impact all of us every day. And next to uh, Father Fitzgerald is Dr. Clarence B. Jones. Dr. Jones, you may have met or encountered before. He, from 1960 until uh, 1968, was the personal lawyer and very senior chief strategist and often draft speechwriter for the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. So we have in a small group of people, very, very small group of people who are part of the intimate inner circle of Dr. King's strategic planning and day-to-day work during the civil rights movement. And that group is so small, you can't count it on one finger. It's On one hand, it's less. And we're enormously grateful to have Dr. Jones' experience because he can talk about Martin Luther King from deep, deep personal experience. And he lives every day to further the legacy of Dr. King. That was, as you know, Dr. King died in 1968, more than 50 years ago. In the intervening years, Dr. Jones has had an extraordinary career in so many different fields of law, uh, finance, uh, social justice, teaching, political activism, and sports. I I can't even begin. But today we're going to focus on the legacy of Dr. King and particularly the concept of nonviolence and how it impacts our lives. I want to briefly talk a little bit about nonviolence, and then I'm going to step back and let our guests uh, speak with you and each other. So about a year ago, our institute convened a meeting with many of the surviving members of Dr. King's team, uh, people like Andrew Young and Bernard Lafayette, and we had Bob Moses, and we had uh, Joan Baez. We had people who were very involved at the time in living through the civil rights movement, risking their lives for it, and furthering the black freedom movement in the United States. And when we also convened, we brought like-minded, important figures of social justice, including a Father Paul Fitzgerald. And we drafted a document, and I want to read just the first couple lines of the document uh, for you. This was from a year ago, and it was a call to conscience on the 90th birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. a year ago. Today, as we remember Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., we watch in anguish as many achievements towards a more just and equal society we believed were secure are being eviscerated in front of our eyes. In this hour of constitutional crisis and moral emergency, do we wish to truthfully honor Dr. King's life, and further his legacy. This question is no less relevant today. As you know, this was the third impeachment in American history that was completed today. The questions of constitutional and moral crisis have not diminished in the last year. So how do we deal with these crises, especially when we feel powerless? Because one of the important issues that you're, especially Dr. Jones will talk about is the issue of power. Nonviolence comes from Gandhi, and Gandhi talked about soul force, 
love force. So power was a key part of it. It's the empowerment of people. And towards what goal? Dr. King said, our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty and inequality, racism, and militarism, and all forms of violence. And how do we do it? Through radical love, through the soul force that Gandhi talked about. You know, that force was so powerful, we think about the Vietnam War movement, we think about the Black Freedom Movement, we think about the colonial, anti-colonial movements throughout the world, and one might think that that was the historical you know, heyday of these movements. But in fact, today is the time of the largest wave of nonviolent mass movements in world history. We think about Hong Kong. In the country of Sudan, they overthrew a ruler through organized nonviolence. In the last year, there have been nonviolent struggles in Bolivia, Chile, Lebanon, Ecuador, Argentina, Algeria, in Puerto Rico, they overthrew the, the governor. And of course, everyone knows that Greta Thunberg and the young students are leading way beyond what adults are doing, the movement to try to address climate change, and the students did that with gun violence. So this is the time where it's most important to understand and if you're moved to find a way to participate in the nonviolent change that's happening in the world today. So with that introduction, I'd like to start um, by asking uh, Dr. Jones to talk a little bit about what nonviolence means to him from his experience with Martin Luther King Jr. and to speak personally about how you felt about nonviolence when you were working with Dr. King. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> when I, when I um, met and I eventually became close and worked with Dr. King, there came a time, of course, when I, I let him know, this was like in the, I first met him in February 1960 and somewhere between 1960 and 1962, I guess, I, uh, I let him know that while I had great respect for what he was doing, that I personally was not nonviolent. That, uh, 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 and that was, uh, that, was, that was not part of the makeup of who I was at the time. I was t- when I met him, I was 29 years old, but not early at 29. Early part of that 29 years old, I'd uh, been in college and football. I'd been in the... Uh, uh, army and the uh, infantry during the uh, Korean War, and uh, and I and I and uh, the the concept of uh, and played and played football, the concept of uh, of of being nonviolent in response to someone doing something to you was just inconceivable to me. Uh, and so, you know, I had uh, I had to have my uh, so. so so his first, his initial response. Well, I'm glad we'll we we'll have to see if we can educate you and change you. But one of the things we need to do is to keep you away from any demonstrations. And you just <laughs> advise me because uh, 
I guess he reacted very strongly because I gave him an example. I said, if a, if a policeman puts his hand on me, he's going down. You know, and Martin says, oh, you can't talk. I, well, that's, that's the way I'm feeling. Anyway, so that, that, was, that, that was part of my uh, early foolishness uh, um, coming from a background, I think, of uh, a lot of uh, young men particularly, uh, you know, say from 18 to 34, particularly if you've been through uh, high school, college, and competitive sports and and then it's aggravated if you've been uh, uh, involved in the United States military. Well, let's just understand what the United States military is. They train you to be a killer. It's not don't put in the air. That's what they do. That's what they do. And some, and so I was, I wasn't alone. Uh, hundreds, thousands of young men went through that process. So then I, uh, I, I see that uh, he's involved in a. Uh, a uh, you know a, a struggle. The thing that impressed me most when, uh, and you could talk about nonviolence in the abstract, but when you see it being um, pursued by a person or persons that you come to respect, uh, it, it, it causes you to r- reflect in in the movement that he sought, that he did lead and sought to lead. He came, he, he clearly understood and tried to get other people to understand, and many of his pers- persons with him did understand, that uh, it was essential that those of us who were challenging um, the, the, the dominant uh, way of life in America at that time, racial segregation, it was rigidly enforced in the South but it was still uh, uh, indirectly enforced throughout the country. And uh, Dr. King was very, uh, very smart because he knew that uh, there's no way that uh, 12% of the population during the time that we were active, when we referred to ourselves as Negroes, there's no way that 12% of the population, Negroes, are going to impose their will or our will on 88% of the population. Why? simply wasn't going to happen. Now, we were being counseled and advised by um, young people uh, around us, some people outside the movement, and saying that, you know, uh, the only thing, only thing the white man understands is the power, from, power that comes from a gun. You know, we don't have to get you all that, you know. And so we listened to that. And uh, we understood, because we understood the politics of reality, that those who were counseling that, those who were counseling 12% of the population to engage in violence, were really committing, uh, urging us to commit suicide. No, don't, no, no way, any way put it. You can dress it up any way you want. They were asking you to be courageous, but to commit suicide. So we're not we weren't interested in committing suicide. We were interested in changing, changing the uh, conditions. And so following his leadership, the uh, pursuit of the struggle and how to bring about change then was to do it nonviolently. Now, I began to understand very clearly as I 
Watson was involved with him, that whether you were personally or philosophically or politically committed to nonviolence, but if you were politically committed to change, you came to understand that the people opposing what you want to do, the people who want to hold on to segregation, the people who want to uh, oppose any form of change that you want, they really would prefer for you to do it to do it violently. Not that they really want to. They would prefer for you to do it violently so that the exercise of violence on your part will obscure the content and the substance of the underlying message. You understand what I'm saying? They'd like for you to engage in craziness because if you engage in craziness, it will obscure... Go back and look at uh, uh, um, uh, well, the time. Oh, I got my minus and my minus slipping me. Uh, they, uh, here recently, uh, uh, t- ten years ago, what was the, what was the major? But um, oh God, this is when you this is when you show you're getting old. But. Uh, um, God, it's, uh, oh, God, I'm wasting valuable time by saying. But the point is, is that I watched on television as they had disciplined people who were uh, uh, marching, uh, marching in, uh, come Ferguson. on, help me. What? Ferguson. Ferguson, thank you. Thank you. Okay? And I watched how, um, in some, some instances, if you looked at the television, uh, carefully, there were people on the sideline who were provoking. There were not only uh, uh, so-called people who were your, your supporters, so-called blacks and so forth, urging you, but you also had people who were opposing you, sort of egging you uh, uh, to, to be violent. And, I, and, and one of the most beautiful things I saw in Ferguson is when Somebody who was part of the disciplined group of leaders wanted to be wanted to initiate an act of violence. They pulled that person out of line. They pulled that person out of line. And and I and I learned in listening to the dialogue, the reason they did so is because they too understood that engaging in violence would completely undermine the whole purpose of what they're seeking to do. Now, the great um, power of Dr. King was he was able to take his profound religious, philosophical understanding and knowledge of Gandhi, his deep commitment, his religious principles. He was able to forge them and apply them in a way so that he would, inst- he would and he did instill courage in those who followed him. And when you challenged him, when those who challenged him as to whether or not, well, this is effective or not, he would engage in some of the most extraordinary public uh, 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 colloquies, discussion about violence, it was almost, he would be talking 
in responding to questions that weren't asked. He was responding to questions as why it was essential to, for us to be violent, to be nonviolent. And he would go through things in crowds that people, they had never, they'd heard, they'd heard of Gandhi, but they didn't go, they didn't really understand that maybe the different stages that you go through in, in, in violence, they didn't understand when you talked philosophically about Sagra and so forth, they didn't understand that. But they did understand the profound love and courage of Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> I think that it was also the fact that he was a deeply religious person. I've often begun to, I've often, not begun, but often reflected sometimes, well, what if he had not been a, a religious person, just been a, a lay person? And there were lay people, there were people who were committed to nonviolence who were not deeply religious. But there was something about the interplay, something about the depth of his religious conviction and simple things of goodness so that he could quote and say literally from quoting a section of the Bible, paraphrasing, he would quote it, I'm paraphrasing what he would say, you know, my Lord, Martin Luther King Jr. saying, my Lord Jesus Christ tells me my God tells me. And he would quote scripture. You know? And then he would get down and the practical and say, now let's, uh, let's understand what we're trying to do here. Okay? If we're trying to end racial segregation, we have to deny the segregationists of any tools that can be used against us. And the best way of denying the tool that they want to use against us is the tool that we are engaged in violence. And they want to tell third parties that no matter what we say about our, the justness of our message, that really they were just some violent troublemakers. All right? So when you demonstrate in the actual way in which you oppose racial segregation, that no matter what the opposition does to you, sometimes it's um, um, uh, awful in terms of death, but no matter what the opposition does to you, that you are not going to sway us from our commitment to engage in nonviolence as a way of bringing about fundamental social change. Now, remember what I said before. His brilliance rises from an understanding of Political reality. 88% of the population, 12% us. Okay? The challenge was how do we get a majority of the 88% of the population to join us? And he believed, and he educated us to believe, that we could get them to look at our courage, to uh, 
maybe even be moved in touch by our courage. And as they begin to listen to the message and begin to listen to some of the things we're saying about the conditions that we're seeking to change, that maybe they would join us. And so his power was not only in the the form of his message, nonviolence, but his power was the depth of his content and the way in which he expressed it. Now here we're going to get a little, I'm not going to say one <clears throat> thing more except to say this. You know what Dr. King is speaking to 500 people and he's saying, I want the segregations who are listening to me, I want them to know that I love them. I want them to know that I love you. And the reason I love you, I'm trying to get you to be a better person than you are. I know you, I know you hate me, but in spite of your hate, I love you. And what you further have to understand is that there is no amount of hate or violence that you can direct to me that is going to overpower or end my love for you. Now, he knows, he would say to you, now, I'm not talking about loving you romantically. <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm talking about. But I love who you are as part of being the human, a human being. <clears throat> You're no different than we are, but for the fact you may look a little different, your skin is different, and your mind is a little <coughs> temporarily messed up. See, <laughs> <laughs> so we want to try to get change your mind, and we have to change your mind for you to see some of the objective conditions that also are affecting you. Mm-hmm. So nonviolence consists of, <coughs> excuse me, intelligence dealing with uh, objective facts that you can talk about, and also reminding the persons you're working with, particularly people you're opposing, that you love them, that you really love them, that you, you care enough about them. You literally care enough about them to confront them. Because if you didn't care about them, you wouldn't confront them. And you show you how much you care about them, as you're willing to... To, to kneel down while, and pray in front of them. And if the police officers are representing you want to beat us, we will still love you. So you either have to think that we're crazy or we're real or a little bit of both. But eventually, his leadership believes that there is simply nothing. Listen to me. Nothing more powerful than the power of love. So, I'd like to ask uh, Father Fitzgerald, when you hear these stories about Dr. King, can you share with us how it resonates with your faith tradition uh, and also um, how those of us who may not be coming from a place of deep faith can find our way to that kind of level of love when it's so hard to deal with people that are either uh, oppose our views or even are violent towards us. So thank you, Dr. Greenberg. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Uh, And thank you all for being here this evening. 
I want to underline as central to our entire conversation what uh, Clarence just said. And I want to do it by telling us a little example from the work of a German philosopher, Hegel, who imagined uh, a period of time before civilization, so it's a thought experiment, and it's where people live before there's rules and society and organizations and laws. And one day a fellow happens to come upon this beautiful big peach tree, and the peach tree is heavy with lovely ripe fruit, and it's a great big tree, and so he picks as much fruit as he can carry and takes it back to his family. Later that day, another fellow comes, along, comes upon this peach tree, does the same thing, picks as much as he can carry and takes it back to his family. And each day, these two fellows visit the peach tree while it's you know, loaded with fruit. And one day they come at the same time. And the one says, what are you doing taking fruit from my tree? And the other says, no, no, this is my tree. And they begin to argue. Keep in mind, there's plenty of peaches. They begin to argue, and then they begin to fight. And then their fight becomes quite violent. And at a certain moment in this struggle for possession of the tree, for ownership of this property, one man realizes, I am neither willing to kill nor be killed to have possession of this tree because a human life, mine or my adversaries, is worth far more. The other person, at the same time, makes a decision, I am willing to kill or be killed for the chance of having ownership of the tree. The more humane, the more sophisticated, the one closer to God drops his arms and becomes the slave of the less human, the less civilized, the less advanced. And so begins the master-slave dynamic. We, in this country, 400 years ago, saw the first group of 20 Africans who had been kidnapped and stolen from their homes, dropped off on the shore of Virginia. And so began, along with the War of Conquest, which killed off most of the people who had been living here before the Europeans came, the two great sins uh, that found our society. Uh, And they're both based on this false notion of white supremacy. Uh, And what Dr. King was able to do, learning also from uh, Mahatma Gandhi and what Gandhi was able to do, who led the British, the English, to realize that they were being inhumane uh, and they had to leave India. Uh, And Dr. King was able to help us understand that white supremacy is a disease which dehumanizes the person who practices it. And so what Dr. King and Reverend Durley and... Actually, you know, uh, Andrew Young, Reverend Young, Clarence was the only non-reverend in the inner circle. But he was the lawyer, so you need a lawyer <laughs> to keep all these priests and reverends in line. But it, it was the civil rights movement was a struggle to liberate African Americans from the racist structures of American society. It was also a struggle to liberate white people from the false and imprisoning notion of their superiority, um, which causes then this endless cycle of violence. So it it wasn't just, the civil rights movement was really to to change the fundamental understanding uh, of human beings in this wonderfully diverse, richly, richly diverse society that we have the the opportunity to be. Um, In in my faith tradition grows out of of, uh, Jonathan, your faith tradition, 
And the ancient Hebrew people uh, had this theological insight. And, and it's simply a belief. It's a leap of faith that every person is created in the image and likeness of God. And if you think back to Genesis, there are two creation stories, one after the other. The first creation story, you know, um, God separates the, 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 the waters above and the waters below, and then land appears. And it's sort of, so it's probably a, a community of people who lived on the seashore, and their creation myth was that life emerged from the sea. And in that story then, you know, you have... Uh, the, the man and the woman created simultaneously both in the image and likeness of God. And then the story stops and we start all over again and now we're out in the desert. It's a trackless desert and then water, God makes water appear and then plants and then comes, you know, Adam and Adam gets to name all the animals and, you know, aardvark and ant and, you know, he goes all the way through to zebra, you know, um, and he loved all these animals but, you know, there's something missing and so then God brings Eve, you know, out of the, the flesh of this man. Uh, the first uh, woman emerges from the body of a man. Every man after that in the history of humanity has emerged from the body of a woman. <laughs> There's great poetry here. There's deep theological sense here uh, in these stories. But it's a theological notion that every human person, you know, and in language today we'd say in, in his or her or their unique intersectionality, every human person is image and likeness of God. And so, you know, the civil rights movement is a deeply Christian movement that had great allies in the Jewish community. There were Catholic nuns and priests, you know, it it grew out of the the Baptist tradition. Um, But Dr. King was able to, to create a movement that was radically hospitable to people of goodwill coming from any faith tradition, no faith tradition, who saw this possibility that that this fierce love, this fierce love, which was was based on a deep courage uh, that that we can absorb the um, the sinfulness and the violence of people in the process of liberating them uh, from their false mentality, uh, which then creates the condition for the possibility of us truly living in peace. Peace is not the absence of violence. Peace is shalom. <laughs> peace is where every member of the community can look every other member of the community in the eye, and no one looks away in anger, no one looks down in shame, uh, because there is peace. And this kind of spiritual warfare, you know, satyagraha is what Gandhi called it, the striving for the truth, ahimsa, soul force, these deep spiritual practices that, that live in every religious tradition give us the strength to not only imagine justice and imagine peace, but to enact it. Um, and it's very expensive. It's very expensive because it costs us a lot of suffering that we, that we volunteer to take on because, you know, violence uh, practiced against violence, just the stronger and more violent one wins and then imposes a new structure of violence and a new hegemony. But this wonderful possibility of the beloved community. So I'm going to brag for one minute about the University of San Francisco. We're about the fifth most diverse university in the United States. Um, and we have diversity of every, of every imaginable 
uh, you know, gender expression diversity, religious diversity, diversity, uh, uh, 111 countries um, uh, comprise our student population. We're a Catholic university with about 30% of our students uh, are Catholic. But our Catholicity, you know, is, uh, is, the, is the platform we build this sense that every person, image and likeness of God, is an equal member of this community. And since we come from so many countries and so many traditions, the one thing we have in common is this deep humanity uh, and this desire to stand in front of each other and meet each other and engage with each other with awe and wonder that God could fashion so uniquely beautiful a person as the one who stands in front of me. This is, love is not, in this case, love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. Come on now, right. And Dr. King and that inner circle, they had, they made a decision which was contagious. And it's taken us a long way, but we have so much further to go. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So I might say, I just want to remind uh, those here and anyone listening, is that the, uh, <clears throat> the University of San Francisco is uh, the only university currently where if you want to get a further understanding of what Father Paul first started talking about, slavery and the whole development of uh, the institution of slavery and the legacy of the ideology of white supremacy, the University of San Francisco has a 15-week course from slavery to Obama Renewing the Promise of Reconstruction. And the course, the 15-week course, takes you on a journey of facts based on a review of the documents and the review of the actual events that occurred during that journey. I repeat, facts, but facts which are verifiable by the documents which are original documents, which we provide for you to look at. Many people don't even know that there was more than one draft of the Declaration of Independence. There's more than one draft, okay? What was the problem in coming to, what was the problem in the draft? Because in the first draft, they wanted to, they wanted to lay the whole question of slavery. They wanted to put that on, on King George. They wanted to say, well, you know, we, we got the situation, but it's because King George, you know, he's, he's the reason we're in this situation. And then, of course... The actual declaration, that's no word of slavery, okay? Think about this extraordinary document drafted, okay? Drafted to launch a country that was, an, that was founded on the institution of slavery because the majority of the members in the founding convention and indeed the most eloquent uh, writer of the Declaration of Independence himself, the slave owner, as were many of the other persons who were assembled in 1776 
and then who gathered together in 1787 to form a constitutional convention. Okay. And Dr. King, his ability was to, to knowledgeable of that uh, political factual history was to marry that or to, uh, to join that with the philosophical, biblical history of the Bible as, as he, the King James Version of the Bible, of course, that he was taught. And then, and not a then, but additionally, he was encyclopedic about the Talmud. So he had, a, he had an ability to sort of contrapuntally, he could think, you know, in the, in, in the Christian tradition, but he was mindful of the, the great traditions that come from the Jewish religion. And of course, he was profoundly influenced by philosophers, German philosophers like Martin Buber and others. And indeed, of course, Gandhi, uh, additionally. One of the um, amazing things about Dr. King's leadership was he knew that he couldn't do it by himself, and he brought together these collective... Uh, leaders to to work with each other, and one of the brilliant things he did was to realize that he needed to bring Dr. Jones in to complement the, as Father Fitzgerald said, all the Baptist preachers he had, and one of the things you may not know is that the initial paragraphs of the I Have a Dream speech were drafted by Dr. Jones. He didn't know he would be used by Dr. King, but they were. One of the images in that, of course, is that We've come here to cash a promissory note that has been brought back to us as insufficient funds. And what did he mean? Well, exactly as he was saying. It says in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. It says in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that there will be equal protection of the laws. That's the promise that's made to all citizens of this country. That promise has been violated, and we're here to have the achievement of that promise. So I realize I have to, to take a little bit of credit, which is um, I've had the privilege to be able to listen to the dialogue between these two men. I thought, oh, my God, we have to give other people a chance to do it. We could do this for four more hours, but we only have another 20 minutes. So I want to open up the, this discussion to questions, and I would be grateful... To, if you could raise the question and have it be framed as uh, succinctly as possible, because as you can imagine, I, I, uh, among the people here, I have, uh, there's lots of things that people want to say. I was uh, noticing when Father Fitzgerald was talking about Genesis, of course, I was thinking of the next story that comes up, which is Cain and Abel. So we're dealing with a perennial problem in the human condition. And the radical nature of nonviolence, Gandhi and King, is to say, let's confront that directly. So let's open up to who would like to ask the first question. Great. And I'd like to remind the audience that they're listening to uh, Father Fitzgerald from USF and Dr. Jones. Uh, and the moderator is Jonathan Greenberg. And we're talking about nonviolence and its history. So who would like to ask the first question? Hello, my name is Veronica Shepard. Um, I have the privilege and the opportunity to work with about 18 African-American faith-based organizations here in San Francisco that are African-American churches. In retrospect of what I've heard, the same similarities, I also grew up during the civil rights 
I'm a native of the Bayview Hunters Point community here in San Francisco. I still see similarities of what I saw as a youth of what pastors were facing during the days of the civil right today. And I'm watching African-American faith-based leaders, men and women, who are in the trenches every day dealing with the violence, the homelessness, the mass incarceration, the housing issues, the medium income for white people in San Francisco is $111,000, and for black people it's $28,000. Mm. I know this because I also work for the health department in this work, so I know a lot of data. So when you see this large gap, what advice do you give community members who are still living this dehumanized experience every day? Thank you. Can you can, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the interest of time, I have to just f- f- uh, f- say <clears throat> that one of the one of the central one of the things that I learned most from working with Dr. King, and and one of the lessons is that while he was very eloquent about the philosophy and and the morality and nonviolence. The dude understood the dynamics of power. He understood power. And uh, he understood that uh, um, it was necessary to force society to see the immorality of its activities or its failure to take action. But at the end of the day, if you want to get a change, you have to do it by amassing power to do so. That's why, among other things, the most critical victory we had was not only the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but the Civil Rights Act of 1965. Voting Rights Act. What? Voting Rights Act. Voting Rights Act. I'm sorry. Thanks for correcting me. Um, we are challenged today. If you... We are challenged today. In fact, I was thinking... I had to give another speech the next week somewhere, and I was thinking, you know, nobody should be permitted... <clears throat> this is my opinion. Nobody should have access to Twitter and Instagram and all of those things, unless they can demonstrate that they are, if they're eligible to vote, that they have a voter registration card. <laughs> See, I am so sick of traveling around the country, of seeing people who have the power and they don't exercise it. Okay? Those faith-based, those, those ministers that you work with, some of whom I know, and I, and I travel in another place and talk to, to them, Talking to talk different places. The most effective way of bringing about a fundamental in the condition of the conditions which strangle them and which, and which um, destroy our communities and which are uh, affecting the life of our kids in our schools, at the end of it, is you have to have the power to make change. And the, the, what Dr. King understood that, that power comes from having the right and you having the right to vote and exercising the vote. One of the things most upsetting to me when Trump got elected and I was in New York and I and I, I walked around there were people carrying <laughs> carrying uh, all sorts of protest signs, protests outside Trump Tower. So I went up to them and I said. Oh, what are you, what are you, I said, how old are you, so-and-so? Well, I'm so-and-so, I said, did you vote? Oh, no, I didn't vote. 
I said, where are they protesting for? Well, I don't like the president. I said, but how old? They told me he was eligible to vote. I said, well, what? I said, you shouldn't be carrying a sign because all you're doing is what they say on Harlem, selling wolf tickets. <laughs> you know, just running your mouth. Right? <laughs> Direct response to your question. The, the leaders in your communities, to the extent that they can get the, get the resources uh, to support their activities, but at the end of the day, change is going to come about by getting every person who is eligible to vote in whatever community they're in, whatever they are. That's what it is. Without, if you're, if you're eligible to vote and you don't vote, then you're, as I say, you're just running your mouth. And I have, I used to be more sympathetic, but now I am not sympathetic at all. I just said, get out of my face, don't waste my time. May I add very briefly, too, thank you, first of all, for your leadership in the community. It's tremendously important. Uh, Secondly, you know, the university, we are here to partner uh, with folks like yourself. We made an institutional commitment uh, to the Western Edition, and we're tutoring at six uh, public schools in the housing projects there. Our ambitious goal is that every child reads a grade level by the third grade. Um, You know, we're working with faith-based communities, communities, Every one of our undergraduate students does a community-engaged learning course. Uh, 15% of our freshman class this last fall is black-identified. So we're educating leaders. Uh, The mayor and the city administrator are both alumni of of USF. Um, And I like to say, you know, we educate our students. We want to ruin our students. We want to ruin them. So when they graduate... They're going to be permanently dissatisfied with the status quo. <laughs> and they're going to spend, you know, and, and, and they're not going to rest. You know, they go into Neiman Marcus or Needless Markup or whatever it's called. <laughs> and they see a, an $800 handbag and they don't say, oh, I would love to have this. They say, what is the life of the person who sewed this bag together? Come on now. So, right. you know... Uh, Right. But, but we, we do partner with lots and lots of organizations in the city, and we just need more. We need to bring in the tech community. We need to bring in the arts. We need to bring in folks and say, we've got to fix this. You know, we have to ask people, are you okay? And we're not asking people. We're not going into people's homes and saying, are you okay? And so we're the, you know, we're the, the, the priest and the Levite walking by the man beat up by robbers on the road to Jericho. Because as Dr. King said in one of his, in one of his uh, sermons, he said, the priest and the Levite walking by the man overcome by robbers and lying in blood on the road, they thought to themselves, what will happen to me if I stop and help this person? The Samaritan sees this man and says, what will happen to him mm-hmm. if I don't help him? That's what we need. That was at a speech he gave it to the Washington National Cathedral, captioned... Uh, Actually, it was, unfortunately, it was his last speech. Uh, yeah, it was the last... No, no, it was the speech in, in, in Memphis the night before he died. If you go back and read the mountaintop speech, you'll see that discussion. But you, it also was, in the, well, also was in March 31st, mm-hmm. which you okay. gave the National Cathedral. Mm-hmm. Both of them, okay. Both. Mm-hmm. So we have such a little bit of time. I, I want to have a couple really short questions and short answers so we can get a couple of them, okay? <laughs> because we have to leave by 7.15. So okay. who would like to ask a short question or a, or a precise question? What can we do, the people in the city who want to make a difference, who want to help? 
what can we do? Excellent short question, but not short answer. <laughs> <laughs> you want to, it's excellent for us to come together like this, and it's important to uh, raise the voice of, uh, about the injustices that you see and so forth. But to, um, to talk about uh, immorality and injustice and to do nothing about it is also immoral. There is, uh, I think San Francisco, for example, is a uh, classic example of the epicenter of immorality in America today. How is it possible that in a trillion-dollar platform of wealth, how is it possible, trillion-dollar platform of wealth and technology, that we have some of the largest homelessness? How is that possible? I mean, how is it possible? People sleeping in the streets, can't find a home, and yet you have all of this wealth. Uh, huh? I'm just saying, that doesn't connect. That is immoral. And the way you do something about it is by voting. Do you want to, I'll be super brief. Dorothy Day once said that it's a terrible thing when the state takes responsibility for charity. Because when only the government is taking care of people in need, it means that the rest of us have become heartless. So now the state has a role, definitely. But, you know, every act of kindness, but act of kindness, leaning in, uh, and then how do we get the tech community, how do we get these various communities to step forward and say, the government has a role to play, but we can act directly. We can act directly. And, you know, Facebook just put a billion dollars on the table. Google put a billion dollars on the table. I think Apple had put two billion, you know, and there's this movement to get the tech community to step forward and help us build two and a half million homes, uh, but not on the periphery of the Bay Area, you know, in the heart of our communities, grand boulevards, five stories high, affordable housing, uh, walk to work. You know, we can solve the housing crisis, we can solve the transportation crisis, but we can solve the spiritual crisis of people growing old and dying in their cars on these long commutes into and out of the city. Uh, but there's so much that we can do directly, and, and, and absolutely, Clarence, voting in good people <laughs> to help us solve these problems, but the private sector, which means us, we can do so much. Thank you. Another question. So one way that I found as a political activist to be, um, to have more influence is through coalition building. Mm-hmm. So I know that me as a political activist, I can only reach so far. But if I can reach out to people who, who share my values, then my reach is big. That is part of the key to me. Mm-hmm. That is a very important part of it. And a huge part of what uh, Dr. King understood and, and, and acted upon. Another question. Next question. Maybe some of our young. There's people. time for one more question. So I think that the tools of um, religion is a really powerful um, tool to create the change that you're talking about, and I think that you have both both of you guys. Your work has really um, been at that intersection of many different religions and races and backgrounds. And that's really what's led you to create the impact that you've had. Um, but I want to ask, how do we collectively get to that intersection? Because I think a lot of people aren't there yet. And that um, being there um, will really help um, to create um, more nonviolence, more peace. Um, yeah. 
Well, selfish, I mean, I, a direct answer, although I don't want to put more uh, load and stress on my office and on, on Jonathan Greenberg. We have the Institute for Nonviolence and Social Justice. <laughs> the Institute there, created with the leadership of Father Paul in the University of San Francisco. That's what, that's what we're about. That's what we're about. We, are, we want to address those issues. We want bring your issues and problems to us because we want to work with you. And, and I particularly want to emphasize what Father Paul says. The university, qua a university, has a commitment to work uh, in, in alliance, in coalition with organizations out in the community. And this is something that uh, I'm very proud that the USF does and uh, I know Father Paul is. I think it was 1946... May have been, it may have been before the war, but uh, Mahatma Gandhi had gone to Whitehall in London, and there was kind of an, a, a bit of a peace conference, the beginnings of a conversation about how the uh, British might imagine leaving India to the Indians and uh, giving them their independence. And he stopped in Rome on the way home, and he went to the Vatican, and he was being given this tour, and you know he deliberately dressed in very simple homespun, and uh, he's being led through the Vatican and the museum and all this wealth and these beautiful works of art. And he's just kind of watching the pathway. He's not impressed with anything until he came upon this very large crucifix. And it was a Spanish crucifix, and it was really bloody. <laughs> you know, and this is, de- this is an innocent man, you know, crucified. And he stopped, and he spent like 40 minutes just staring at it. And he put his head down, and he continued on. It was the only thing in the Vatican that impressed him, that someone might, you know, give his life, uh, not only for those whom he loves, but for those who are killing him. You know, um, Hans Kung, a, a Swiss theologian, said there can be no peace among the peoples until there are there's, there is peace among the religions. So religion can be a great force here, or it can tear us apart. Mm-hmm. A- and so we have to have this inner faith. You know, respect, you know, many paths to the top of the same mountain rather than I'm right and you're wrong. But if we can have that deep, deep respect, uh, then we can do that coalition building and then we can unleash this power and and we can accomplish great things. Thank you. I wanted to um, just, we're about to conclude. I wanted to follow up on what um, uh, both Father Fitzgerald and and, and Dr. Jones um, talked just spoke about and tell you a couple of very specific things that we're working on at our new institute. So this morning I had an amazing conversation and it's just beginning, but one of the most important activist organizations in the world dealing with climate change is called 350.org. And 350.org has a new director of programs for North America who's absolutely committed to integrate the social justice movements, the racial justice movements, and the grassroots organizations in communities across the country into the larger effort to address climate change. And we are going to partner with them in what form we'll let you know, but we will partner with them. We'll try to, we're going to hopefully convene meetings with them because, you know, Dr. King didn't know about the climate crisis, but we do, and there's no question that this is absolutely fused with all these other issues. The second one, there's an incredible thing you can look up called the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative, 
which is being led by a, 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 a group of Catholic theologians, professors, priests, and archbishops who are trying to work with our current pope. See, I say our. There we go. <laughs> pope Francis, Jesuit pope. Um, to ha- Their goal is for Pope Francis to publish an encyclical, the highest level of Catholic law that he can publish, that will declare nonviolence to be the central message of the gospel that was understood by the Catholic Church deeply for 300 years, and then for the last 1,700, they went off track. And we need to go back. And when Dr. Jones and I came to speak with Father Fitzgerald, was he? I obviously have no right to enter into Catholic theology <laughs> discussions, so we wanted to get Father Fitzgerald's blessing. Not only did he give us the blessing to engage and participate, but Father Fitzgerald said, yes, and we want this to be interfaith, to expand. And So we're initiating an interfaith nonviolence initiative in San Francisco, highlighting the unique features of San Francisco as the city of St. Francis, city of peace, working with grassroots organizations, students, and faculty. So we're trying to reach out in, in, in a lot of different ways. I, I want to ha- tell one last quick story, and then uh, to conclude, um, you might. I happened to read today that uh, the actor Kirk Douglas passed away. And the Kirk Douglas was an amazing actor, and there's a film which I highly recommend to everyone here by Stanley Kubrick called Paths of Glory. It's one of the most amazing films and it's a, it's a war film. It's a war film and an anti-war film. It's about World War I, and it's about a, a lawyer for the military, Kirk Douglas, who has to defend three soldiers who are accused of cowardice. They end up being framed and executed. And slowly you see that there's levels and levels of corruption of power that lead to tremendous violence. And it's a tragic tragic movie and at the very end of the movie there's a scene the, the movie's over and then there's a coda and the coda is Kirk Douglas walks into a barracks where these are American soldiers that are about to go back out to get killed and they bring out for entertainment a German woman beautiful German woman who's a prisoner who's obviously captive and they're taunting her and teasing her and laughing, and they ask her to sing. And, they, you know, it's a, it's a big goof for these guys to, you know, have this good-looking young German woman there and singing. But she starts to sing, and then slowly her singing gets to their absolute heart and they slowly recognize that this could be their girlfriend or their wife. And there's this transformation that happens where this love that Father Fitzgerald and Dr. Jones is talking about happens through the pure recognition of our intertwined humanity. It's just devastating and beautiful. And Kirk Douglas watches this, and then he, he tells them, don't send him to the front for a little while. Let him stay a little bit longer before they go. So I want to, with all of you, I want to uh, deeply thank uh, Father Paul Fitzgerald and Dr. Clarence Jones. Thank you so much.
And I think one thing that was implicit tonight uh, was that if you want to use nonviolence as your tool, you must be patient. I mean, Dr. Jones has been patient since 1960 working on this. That's a really long time. The Catholic Church has been doing it for 2,000 years. And we have other institutions that are also very ancient. And if you think that no progress has been made, read here history books. Because progress has been made, and just keep at it, and just don't waste your whole energy, keep your happiness, but know that if you keep working at it, things keep progressing. And even if they don't progress linearly, they still progress. So thank you very much for coming, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. So ends another event in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. We're just getting started here uh, at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Thank you.